Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each, of the, each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Good evening. I am uh, suffering from the man flu, so forgive me if my voice. Uh, Carly is basically a doctor. She's like graduated from Stanford, and she was like, what is the man flu? To which my answer is like, it's a yet to discovered medical term that exists only within men. Uh, you will soon see. On top of that, also, Sarah Metcalf is like, I, tells me that I look like a dapper grandpa which I don't know that that's a compliment. <laughs> so it's the new balance. That's what it is. Yeah, so anyways, I'm struggling today, guys. Uh, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, sometimes it's the simple prayers that are so sincere. And so help me not sneeze for the next 30 minutes or so. Um, also, Lord, as we look at your word, um, May the power of the Holy Spirit just reveal your truth to us, Lord, and, and let us be encouraged by the way in which you love us. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've been going through uh, the, the story of creation through Genesis. And if you've been paying attention, the which I know you all have, that sounded incredibly condescending. Uh, you all have been paying very close attention, and what you've probably realized is that there's this sort of like crescendo that's happening. It's like it all starts, and everything is building up. God is creating, and it is good, and he's molding, and it is good. And the crescendo of the entire creation story is in the verses that we just read. Like the, the peak of his creation is the image bearers of God, Adam and Eve, not just Adam and Eve as image bearers of God, but also within the context of a marriage. That is his magnus opus of creation. It's like the golden tip of the pyramids. It's Picasso's Ganica painting or Yo-Yo Ma's Sweet One in G minor. This is the pinnacle of God's creation. And it's interesting that the Bible is riddled with typology and symbolism from beginning to end. You've got bread and wine. You've got ceremonies and celebrations and baptism. And out of all of God's symbolisms and typology, God chooses to reveal his crowning achievement through marriage. Isn't that amazing? And it's a sign 
that the whole Bible is ultimately this love story, that it starts with this marriage in a garden with Adam and Eve. And all throughout the scriptures, we see over and over again illusions of marriage. And then finally, another crescendo is in Revelation. All of this ends in a celebration of marriage, which we'll get to later. Um, we, we look here and, it, and it, the first thing it tells us, well, actually, let me say one more thing. I think for most of you who have heard me preach for long enough know that I, I stay away from emphatic statements. Uh, but with that said, I also think the significance of this crowning achievement tells us that losing sight of the meaning of marriage risks losing sight of the very meaning of the gospel. In other words, the details that God is revealing to us through the context of this first wedding between Adam and Eve, the specifics are so important to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so as we go through this, I hope that we will discover what God intends for us to understand through this. And so it starts with, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, up until this point, God has created all things. And as uh, Mark went through last week, God not only creates the entire cosmos, all of creation, but the story of creation is also not just about everything that God creates. It's also about a specific place, a garden, not just any garden, but a garden that's actually a temple, the dwelling place of God the dwelling place of his image bearers. The scriptures tell us that we are not supposed to create golden images of God. Why? Because we are the image bearers of God. And so every time he creates something, it ends with like, it is good, it is good, it is good. Four times it ends with, it is good. And then we get to verse 18, and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. As you follow along in this crescendo, that should like cause your hairs on the back of your neck to stand up. This is pre-fall. This is God's creation. Everything is good. It is not good. What could that possibly mean? First and foremost, it doesn't mean fallenness. It doesn't mean brokenness. It doesn't mean sin. What it means is it is not yet complete. There's something missing, missing here. I don't know if you guys ever watched like Bob Ross paintings. Is that, am I just the weird guy that does that? I have like no interest in painting, but he is so fascinating to me. You know what I mean? He's like the uncle I never had. But what's funny about Bob Ross is that like he'll be, I don't know if this has ever happened to you guys. He'll be sitting there working on his painting and then he'll get to a point where it's like the trees look great. The clouds are good. The grass is clear. Like everything looks really good. And you're like, dude, if that was my painting, I'd be done. Stop right now. But then he like add, adds another smudge of color. And then you're like, dude, you just ruined it. Like that color doesn't fit. What are you doing? But he starts to mold it and shape it, redefine it. And after about five or 10 minutes, you're like, oh, I see now. Yeah, yeah, it's better than what it was before. That's what's happening. That is God's way of saying it is not good. There's something missing. He's about to bring another smudge into the story and work it into it so that we can see a more beautiful, better picture of what God intends to say. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, I think it's important to pause here because um, here's what that doesn't mean. 
That doesn't mean it is not good for someone to be unmarried. That's an important thing to distinguish here, right? Because ultimately, you are not, as an unmarried person, you are not less than someone who is married. That is not what the scriptures intend for it to say. And I think often, if I'm confessing, preachers and teachers get up and we talk so often about marriage and family and raising kids that it can often make the single persons in the room feel like, man, like my life is not going to be complete. I'm not going to find the fulfillment of my life until one day I am married and then I'll know what it's like to be a full human again. That is not the intent of this. What is happening here is that God is saying, we are created for community, specifically gospel community. Now think about the implications of that. The humility of a God to create Adam and Eve, or I should say to create Adam first and go, man, I'm not gonna just have you need me I'm also going to have you need other people. I'm going to design you for gospel community. And just to further on the proof that singleness is not less than marriage, I think it's important to recognize that Christianity is the only major religion that is founded by a single man. And in addition to that, it is Paul, a single person, writing and saying, it is good for the widow and the singles to remain single. And yet, let's also recognize that we in America especially, we we have a loneliness epidemic. As a matter of fact, I was reading an NPR article And uh, they were referencing a survey that's called the Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. And the survey goes over the reality that pre-COVID, 50% of Americans described themselves as extremely lonely. And that number has only gone up. And it goes on to talk about the, the issues of this, of heart disease increasing, stroke, dementia, depression, suicide. But here's the thing, if you're single in the room, Marriage is not the answer to your loneliness. And as a matter of fact, there may be married people in this room that are feeling lonely. And so they can tell you marriage is not the answer to our loneliness. So what is the answer to our loneliness? Our loneliness can only be fulfilled in finding our value and worth within the context of our relationship with God. And then he saves us not just to be alone in this world, but out of anonymity and into gospel community. He intends for you to be known and loved in the context of a gospel community. God made us for each other and for himself. That is a humble gift from the Lord. He goes on to say, I will make a helper corresponding to him. The heart of God and the order of creation is revealed to us in the fine details of marriage. And God is actually showing us something very specific about the relationship between Adam and Eve. He is saying that Adam and Eve are alike, yet opposite. 
equal in value and worth, capability, capacity, both created in the image of God, yet different, yet opposite, made for each other. And this primarily, there's a lot of ways we can break this up, but let me just tell you two large sort of no-brainers. This is meant to be applied to the gender assigned to both Adam and Eve, and it's, it's intended to apply to their role within the context of their marriage. Listen, every culture has their own traditions. And I've been blessed. I've been to American weddings, Mexican weddings, which last three days for the best. I've been to Swiss weddings. I've been to African weddings. All of these weddings have different ways in which they put on display and practice tradition according to their culture. And that is a beautiful thing. It is a good thing. But marriage itself is not a cultural thing. It is not something designed by us or defined by us, but rather it is designed and defined by God. And there is no other expression of marriage other than what God intended for it to be. And we'll see why in just a minute. We'll see why, what, what is it, what it is, it's just an arbitrary laws or rules? No, he's pointing to something so beautiful that we'll see in just a minute. And let's also talk about the fact that it talks about a helper. That can be like an uncomfortable word, helper. And let me just say first and foremost that a helper is going to look different in each marriage between like our personalities and dispositions, our capabilities and capacities. But here is one way it should always look universally. According to God's word, a husband is called to be the spiritual leader of the home. Adam was the prophet, priest, and king in the garden. And when Adam and Eve fall, whose name does God call upon? He doesn't say, Eve, where are you? He doesn't say, Adam and Eve, where are you? He calls on the name of Adam. Why? Because he is the one who is the prophet, priest, and king. And ultimately, the sin falls upon Adam because he is the leader and she is the helper. And I fully realize that that can sound diminishing in our modern ears. It can sound belittling to say that somehow, well, to, to use the word a helper, it sounds like less than, but I would argue that we are using or imposing our cultural definition of helper onto that word helper. Because listen, in our modern day, a helper gets paid less. A helper is a hired hand. A helper is secondary in our culture, but that is not the case in God's economy. As a matter of fact, God himself uses that same word helper to describe himself and his relationship with his people. Exodus 18.4, the God of my father was my helper and delivered me. Deuteronomy 33, 7, the writer asks God to be his helper all through Psalms, especially Psalm 33. It says, our soul waits for the Lord because he is our help over and over and over again. God assigns that same word, helper, help to himself. What does that mean? That means wives. Being a helper 
is being like God. And God is not lesser than. God acts as a helper to his faithful men, guiding their steps. God acts as a helper when he delivers his men from destruction. And God is the one who is the help for our soul to find rest. Your biblical feminine role taps into the very nature of God himself. That is not lesser than. You are not to be diminished. You are an image bearer of God. Let me say that again. Your biblically feminine role as helper taps into the very nature of who God is. And men, before we stumble in pride, thinking that our roles give us some sort of right to diminish our wives' view as though it's less important, it would serve us well to remember that God is our helper. Is his counsel not the one that guides your steps? Is his wisdom not deeper than yours? Is his help not the one you depend on for deliverance? So when God is offering you a helper, he is not saying to you, here is somebody less important. Here is someone's opinion less informed, less wise. Here are thoughts for you to just throw away whenever they disagree with you. No, when God offers to you a helper, what he is saying is, I mean to work through this person to help you, to give you wisdom and counsel to guide your steps. And so for you to diminish that is to diminish the very help of God himself. Don't do that, bros. God has given you a wife and her wisdom is the same as his wisdom to be your help, to guide your steps, to shape your thoughts, She is not there to be overruled, but to guide you. You know, Kelly and I have been married 12 years, and uh, there's been a few times in our marriage where, like, we we don't see eye to eye to something. These are big things, like what house to buy, what school to send the kids to, what job to take, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we'll pray, and we'll talk, and we'll pray, and we'll talk. And at some point, there's always this moment where Kelly would be like, you know what? I trust your leadership in this. And man, there is nothing that causes me the fear of the Lord more than hearing my wife say those two, those four words, I trust your leadership. And often when she said that, I've gone back to her and go, "Ah, you're right. I see it your way now. This goes on and it gets into a poem. It says, this one at last is bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. I love this, guys. Here's what's going on. Basically, after all this time, Adam, like God parades around Adam, all of these creatures, and Adam spends the time naming them all. Now he's exhausted, he's tired, and he's feeling alone, and God puts him to bed. He grabs his rib, he comes over here, and he like fashions his daughter, and he's like, wait right here. And then he goes back to Adam, and he wakes him up, and he goes, 
wait right here. And then he goes back to Eve and like a husband, or I'm sorry, like a father walking his daughter down the aisle, God presents Eve to Adam. That's what's happening here. And he breaks out in the first poem ever written by man. And you can hear like the angst, this one at last. And then he's not worshiping her or her body. He's worshiping God, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Listen, I get it. That doesn't sound like beautiful poetry in our language, but I assure you in the original language, this is a beautiful song of worship and praise from a son to his father for his bride. Adam sings this worship song. He also, in the midst of it, recognizes the equality between man and woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We are equal and you are beautiful. And then in verse 24 and 25, he says, it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. Okay, that was the intro. (laughs) We're gonna go quick here. Because actually, we're going to spend the rest of our time on this one verse right here. And here's the reason why. The New Testament actually quotes this one verse three different times. And I think it would be wise for us to look at the way in which the New Testament interprets this verse. And so the first time, it's regarding divorce. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6, says it like this. Some of the Pharisees approached him to test him. That's Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There he is quoting Genesis. Then he says, so they, he doubles down, notice, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, now he's tripling down, let no one separate. Here's what the Pharisees are doing. They're going to Jesus and they're like, hey, listen, Moses wrote this thing 1,500 years ago, but we're in modern times. We're in a Roman world with, with new cultures and modern issues and problems surely you don't believe all this stuff that happened 15 years ago should be applied to us today. We need to loosen up on this. Don't you think, Jesus, shouldn't this kind of stuff look a little bit different? This is a modern world, and Jesus is not having it. He doubles down on it all. What are the implications for this? It is this. Your marriage in 2024 is just as divine just as important to God as that first marriage in the garden. Your marriage is a remnant artifact of Eden. No matter what it looks like, why? Because it's God who seals the deal. It's not the minister and it's not even you or your husband or wife. It is God that says this is one flesh, one life, one purpose, one suffering, one budget, one family. And you could be like, man, but you don't get it. It's hard. Let me tell you this. Have you ever thought about the reality that God is in the longest, worst marriage in all of history? Seriously, think about it. And like, 
the beauty of God never saying, I'm done. I'm done with my people. And all throughout the scriptures, he calls our sin, he, he equates it to infidelity. Like we prostitute ourselves to false gods and God does not leave us or forsake us. He keeps his covenant with us. This is the grace that has been offered to us by God and he means to reveal it to us through faithful marriages. As a matter of fact, I would argue and say that a good, beautiful, healthy, faithful marriage displays the beauty of God's covenant with us, but not as much as when you keep your covenant throughout the hardest of times. There is when you really begin to understand and put on display the covenant of God between Jesus and his bride, the church. You know, I think that um, a part of the problem in modern times is that when we're single, there's this thought in the back of our mind, like that next step, when we are married, then things are gonna really make sense. Then I'll find joy and satisfaction. Then I won't be lonely. But if you think about it, that is way too much pressure to put on a spouse. Like we're ultimately treating someone else as a functional savior. And anybody who's married in the room, like look over to the single person next to you and be like, yeah, don't do that. Because it doesn't work, right? It, which is, the, here's the reality, is that satisfaction will never come from having a spouse, and it will never come from having a better marriage or a different marriage. The satisfaction that we are looking for can only be found in the relationship between us and our true husband, that is Christ. The second way that the New Testament talks about this is really defining a theology of the body. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 to 20. Here's what it says. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says, here comes the quote, the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And then here up, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify your God with your body. One of the modern like pushbacks against the Christian ethic is like, why would God care about what happens in the bedroom between the seat sheets? But man, this scripture is telling that you are not your own. Like there's this beautiful realization that God cares about the specifics, that he cares about the details, that your body is not something that we just use for pleasure. Rather, he calls it his temple. I mean, think about like what, what Mark preached on last week, how much God cares about his temple. He builds a beautiful temple in the garden. And all throughout the Old Testament, he cares deeply about the temple. And then in the New Testament, he says it's our bodies that are a temple. It's like if your bodies could speak in a moment of sin, it, was like, it would be like, man, don't you remember that I belong to Jesus? 
do you see that the biblical ethic of sexuality is not about restrictions, but rather about an invitation to experience and know the glory of God? You know what else this means? This also means that like anybody who's ever like anybody who's ever committed physical or sexual abuse, which I know some of you know, like I, you know, from seven to 12 years old, I was sexually abused and then I was physically abused by my next stepdad. If that is a part of your story, man, let me just remind you that anybody who ever does that to your body, they are picking a fight with God. That is his temple. That's what makes it wrong. It goes on to say, that we should be naked and not afraid. The body of a woman is not a commodity. And men are not called to be predators. Naked and unafraid, unashamed, talks about a place of beauty and goodness and safety. Lastly, marriage is also revealed to us as a prophetic sign to the world. Ephesians 5, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's the quote, and then it says, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ in the church. In this last example, what God's basically doing is fully revealing to us that marriage is not ultimately about us, but rather it is about the glory of God. Marriage is not just some random gift God gives us to enjoy on our own and to redefine on our own terms. Marriage and sex and that relationship between a man and the woman is the heart of what God is doing, what he means to reveal to us about his relationship with the church. This is the beauty of the gospel. You know, throughout the entire Old Testament, over and over and over again, God's people betray God, and he calls it infidelity. And then in the New Testament, like, God's church is established, and right away, they start getting themselves in a whole bunch of disaster and mess. And it's, it's likened to infidelity. And yet, over and over and over again, the gospel is that God will not give up on his bride. We've, I looked at, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And I know I've talked about it before, but it's because the Bible makes me. I actually looked it up. I, I talked about this story in 2022 in May, and then again in 2020 when we went through Revelation and then a sermon on 1 Peter. But now in Ephesians, it's, 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 it's referencing it again when it says, you were bought with a price. And of course, this is the story of the prophet and the prostitute, Hosea and Gomer. And in that story, as a reminder, Hosea is this is this faithful prophet. And God goes to this faithful prophet, and he's like, hey, look, man, there's this, there's this prostitute in town. I want you to go in there, and I want you to marry her. Now, you can imagine the hesitation. Like, really? 
And I'm like, one of your faithful servants, man, that, that, that feels dangerous. I don't know about that. But being a faithful prophet, he goes, he finds her, he brings her home, they get married, they have three kids, and eventually the prostitute leaves him, sells herself back into prostitution. I want to pause there for just a second. Imagine the pain that the prophet is going through. Like he committed his life to this woman. They have three kids together and now she's gone. Can you imagine the shame, the embarrassment, the hurt, the pain, the betrayal? And God goes to the prophet and is like, we're not done with her. He takes him to the marketplace and there he finds the prostitute. And the scriptures say that God tells him, I want you to buy her back. And it tells us that he buys her back for pennies on the dollar, which means the world was done with her. She had no value and worth anymore to the world. And he brings her home and they, you know, reignite their covenant. And eventually at some point, this prophet writes this beautiful poem about her, about his love for her. And it is God who says, do you see This is what it's like to be the God of my people. They will leave me and forsake me. They will spend their days pretending like I don't exist, prioritizing other idols over me, loving other things before loving me. But I will not leave her and forsake her. The gospel is that it is Christ who steps into the marketplace and buys you back but he doesn't pay for pennies on the dollar. He pays with his life, with his whole life, so that he can bring you home, clean you up, and call you his bride. This divine story, this love story begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve, and it ends in this great marriage celebration between Christ and his church, between him and In us, Christians, look to him. See how he has loved you. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx dot church. Thanks again for listening.